Well, gracious Father, again, as we come before your word, we are humbled uh, by its sincerity, its deep truths, by the very fact that we desperately need your spirit to be our teacher rather than us to somehow in our own worldly human wisdom uh, wrestle with these passages of Scripture because Scripture needs to be spiritually discerned. And, and so we're asking you, Spirit of God, this evening to give us that spiritual discernment, give us the understanding of your word, and I pray that these truths would be alive to us, that we would see its rich application and understanding in how we live this life out. And I ask you, Father, that we would be excited as a result of this uh, study this evening. Be with us, Spirit of God, as our teacher tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just say this. This is something the Lord laid on my heart. Uh, Because as we approach something like the millennium, and it is easy to ask the question, what is the benefit of studying the millennium? Now, I've, I've talked about this. The benefits, especially if there's no millennium here on earth between the resurrection and the judgment, how we would view Old Testament passages, they either refer to this age or the age to come, but not some intermediate type of age that premillennialists would call the millennium. Um, So there's benefit there, okay, but there is a reason uh, why it's in the Bible, why this verses 1 through 10 of Revelation 20 are there. And not just that, but I'm going to venture to say any passage in the scripture that is difficult to understand. All right? Number one, I would say, and there are two things that I want to point out. Number one, the closer we get to the correct understanding or interpretation of scripture, the more it should thoroughly impact us in how we live uh, truly radically for the Lord, for Jesus. Okay, so the more I understand the scriptures, then the more it should impact me. So if I'm going to study the millennium, then it should impact me more. If I study uh, anything in scripture, including, I guess, the genealogies, it should impact me. All right. So that's our that's our end goal. Um, I, I would venture to say that there, unfortunately, there's that's not always the case when people study the scriptures. They're more content with knowledge rather than change their our end goal needs to be transformation not simply information and again i would draw you back to second peter chapter one add to your faith goodness to goodness knowledge knowledge self-control perseverance godliness brotherly kindness and love love is the end goal it's the end game it's it's the capstone it's 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 what we are seeking to grow into and it unifies all these other character qualities as colossians 3 speaks of but if, if we focus on knowledge or information, and that's why we're studying the, the millennium, then I'm going to say that that's going to breed pride because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So all scripture needs to be properly understood to impact us and transform us. That's why we study things like the millennium, uh, e- e- even though we may not see uh, rich application, regardless, it's there, and I'm going to suggest that there is application, there, are, there is a purpose for it being in there. And, and the second purpose, a second um, point I want to make is that God purposefully had Scripture written in such a way that some portions are difficult to understand. Have you ever wondered, God, why didn't you just make everything so simple? Why did you make 
Paul, such a hard writer. Why didn't you get somebody else? Why did you have to have Paul write such complicated... Even Peter recognizes that there are people who misunderstand Paul, distort what he teaches to their own destruction. Uh, Peter recognizes, whew, that's one brother that knows how to talk deep. And why? Why, did you, why didn't you just choose someone just really simple like John? John's so plain. Well, can I just say, if you think John is plain... Uh, not you, John. You're, you're pl- that, that's, that's kind of a plain shirt, John, honestly. Anyway, John the Apostle. Sorry. I think it's a great shirt. It's a name brand shirt. It's a great shirt. Uh, totally my bad, John. Yeah. My apologies. But the Apostle John, then I'm going to say, if that's not you, John, then you haven't really dug into the Gospel of John. John also wrote Revelation, by the way. First, second, and third, John. Those, the, John wrote... Very understandably, but he wrote very deep. And all I can say is the more you study John, the, the deeper you realize uh, that he wrote. But, so Paul wrote in, in very uh, challenging, intellectual ways, but God had him do that for a reason. And I'm going to suggest two reasons why he did that. Number one, it forces us, does it not, to dig into Scripture to more and more, to meditate on it, to understand it, uh, both for informational and transformational purposes. So this then should compel us to fall in love with Jesus more and more. The more we study Scripture, the more we should fall in Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus is that not, not right? So, but the other reason is I be, I believe that Scripture can be complex and difficult at times, though it is understandable. In every place, it is understandable. Otherwise, he would not have written it. But we do have to work hard. We do have to dig in. We we have to be able to come to this point where we live with other believers who hold the differing views on non-essential biblical topics in a way that is both humble and loving. Okay? And so I can dwell with a dispensational brother who disagrees with me on spiritual gifts. And and I'm going to be honest with you, that is a topic that is close to my heart because I do believe that God gave us all of these spiritual gifts for a reason. However, if a dispensational brother disagrees and says prophecy is out the window, tongues, interpretations out the window, God doesn't speak to us today, it's only through scripture, blah, 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 and I disagree with him, I need to be able to live with that brother or sister with humility and with love. And that is Christian maturity. That is what Christ would have done. I think Christ would have set him straight, but regardless, you know what I'm saying here. Christ, Christ's goal is for us to dwell in this diversity of theology. It, it, God equipped us and gave us various giftings until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Um, and, and I don't believe that that means that we all have one theology, that we all think exactly and interpret scriptures exactly the same. I do not believe that, that w- that's what that means. It focuses on maturity and, and being unified with one another. That is the unity that it's speaking of. That knowledge, that relational knowledge with our awesome God. And so if we do not know how to, and, and you just need to look at Christian, many, not all, many Christian bloggers. They are, well, I was about to say something somewhat ungracious just now, and I'm <laughs> contradicting totally what I'm saying. 
I think there are people out there who are... They love to prove their point and express how knowledgeable they are to their own detriment. Okay? They love to put other people down and thereby exalt themselves. And Paul says this. He says, you know what? Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. So even in all of their imperfections, some of these preachers of the gospel, Paul said, I still love them and I'm excited that they're preaching the gospel. And I'm excited that my dispensational brothers are proclaiming Christ. I disagree on a number of things that they teach, you know, especially concerning the kingdom of God. But the truth is, I can love them and I truly can dwell with them in unity. We can, church. And so as we go through the millennium, I think part of the reason why God had this so complex, two reasons, to make us dig into it, and number two, that we would learn, even though there are four differing major, you know, there's more than that, there's more than four, but generally speaking, four different views, and we can learn to get along with all three other views that differ from us. Amen? So, that, we, we need to be able to converse in a way that is both humble and love. Okay, now, having said that, I would like us to uh, look at our lesson today, and it's Satan's defeat and our reign. Satan's defeat and our reign. I am going to piggyback from the passage of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, that we've been discussing, because I do believe that at least in part, this does speak of Satan's defeat. Satan's defeat as you can see from your notes, has come to us or will come to us in three stages. Now, when I, when I say it comes to us is because he is our adversary. We are battling him. We are gaining victory over him. But his defeat comes to us in three stages. He has been defeated at the cross. In this age, he is presently being defeated. And he will... Excuse me, he will eventually experience complete and utter defeat in which he is destroyed when he's thrown into the lake of fire. So there are three stages, if you will, of his being defeated. And I believe scripture teaches all three of these very clearly. And so I want us to look at it. I do want to throw out something to you that uh, I I do believe is significant um, with regard to the uh, the, the millennial views that we have been discussing and then kind of use this as a springboard into these three verses. From the premillennial perspective, Satan is bound. And I'm going to suggest to my premillennial brothers, how can you, or I'll pose a question, how can you have Satan bound And apparently all the demons free to deceive, to tempt, to destroy, steal, kill, etc. This is what Satan and his demons do. How can we have them running free during the millennium? Because my Bible tells me that only Satan is bound. Now, from the premillennial view, they would say, yes, Satan is bound, but we need to understand that it is all of the demons of darkness as well. And and I'm going to challenge that, okay? Um, Because my focus here is Satan. 
I'm, I'm using this to kind of crystallize my point at, right now. If you were to look at how the concept of Satan or that title, meaning accuser, is used in the New Testament, it is used in both a very specific way, referring to a, our adversary, a specific adversary. He's the devil or Satan. He is a single entity. Um, and yet, he is also a... Uh, the, the name Satan can refer to both Satan and his demons. All right? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm going to suggest to you that whenever you're tempted, it is not just the devil, but it is also his demons. Okay? It is also his demons. But we say, Satan, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Even though we make, because remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at the same time. He is not tempting everyone on earth at the same time. I do believe he prowls around like a roaring lion, even though he has been bound in the abyss. And so, I'm going to suggest that Satan can refer to the demons. But I'd like, I would invite you to look through the book of Revelation and see how John seeks to zero in whenever he, when he wants to speak of the devil and only the devil and not his demons, he gets very specific. We see this in two places in, in Revelation. The f one place is Revelation 12, in which he says, And I saw a large red dragon, and his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. Those stars would represent fallen angels, and then it says, Michael and his angels made war against Satan and his angels, his fallen angels. And Satan and his fallen angels lost and were cast or hurled to the earth. It, it's, it's clear because it's right there. He makes a distinction between Satan and his followers, his fallen angels. And he says, Satan, the ancient serpent, the devil, and he, he, it's like he's the dragon, he is Satan, he's the devil, and he's the ancient serpent or the old serpent. And so he's very clearly referring to the devil as a singular entity rather than representative of all his demonic horde. And he even goes so far as to say the devil and his angels. He does that very same thing here in Revelation 20. He says the devil, Satan, that old serpent, and he's really trying to clarify, guys, I'm talking about one single entity. Now, to back this up, we know that he's not talking about all his demonic horde, but rather just Satan, because how many angels does it take to bind Satan? Does it take the whole army? Because it did in Revelation 12. It took Michael and the, the, the good angels making war against Satan and his angels to defeat Satan and his angels. Does it take the whole army and the whole host of heaven to, to bind Satan? How, how many angels does it take to do this in Revelation 20? One. That's right. Just one. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven with a great chain in his hand, with a, and he had a key to the abyss. So it takes just one angel. So I'm going to suggest to you that John is really trying hard to make it clear to us that this he is only referring to Satan and not to his demons. And if this is the case, 
than what are those demons doing during the, the, during the millennium? Now some, I, I've seen some try to, you know, well, Revelation 18.2. I don't believe that Revelation 18.2 fairly applies to this. You can look at other passages. I, I, I have failed to see any... For most premillennialists would take the stand that it is Satan and his demons that are bound for a thousand years. But that I'm going to suggest to you that it's pretty clear that that is not John's what John is trying to say. This is just Satan. So, having said that, then we see that in these three verses, just Satan is bound. He is tied up and cast into the abyss. All right? We also looked at what this, uh, what was it, two Wednesdays ago, we looked at what this idea of being bound or tied up meant. And we went back to Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, and we saw a parallel. When the kingdom of God, no, when I cast out demons, that's a sign that the kingdom of God has come. Or, he says, let me put it another way, when you want to rob a man's house, you, a strong man's house, you must first bind him up. That's the same word that's used here in Revelation 20 to refer to Satan being bound. You need to bind him up so that you can plunder his house. And I looked at that word house. It's used in two different ways in Matthew. Later in verse 43, and we looked at this, when a demon is cast out of a man, he wanders in arid places. Those arid places, I suggest to you, is the abyss. And he's looking for rest. And when he finds it, he goes into that house. And that house is metaphorically the man that he was originally cast out of. So that house, which is oikos, is a metaphor for the man who was demonized, that he came out of and now he goes back into. The word that we encounter in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, is oikia, not oikos. And I think that Matthew was very specific so that we would not be confused because this word can be translated house, oikia or oikos. So why does he do this? If you back up just a few verses, Jesus is being accused of that he's Beelzebub, and he's saying, in, in, I'm going to paraphrase, are you guys pulling my leg? Are you being serious? Think about this. Can a kingdom be divided against itself? I mean, if Satan casts out demons, he's divided against himself. A kingdom can't stand. And then he goes on and he says, if a, or if a city or a house, an oikia, is divided against itself, it will not stand. And so when Jesus talks about the strong man's house, he's not referring to a man that was demonized. He is referring to Satan's kingdom, Satan's house, Satan's city, his domain, where he rules, the kingdom of darkness. And so he's saying that if you bind the strong man, then you can plunder his house. And he's saying, remember, he said in the very beginning of that verse, or let me put it to you another way. That is... How? When the kingdom of God comes, demons are cast out. They are submitted to your authority, to the, to the name of Jesus. Okay? And so I'm going to suggest to you that the coming of the kingdom binds the strong man. Binding Satan, who is the strong man, 
we can now plunder his kingdom. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians 1, 13. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Do you see the two kingdoms here? The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Jesus, or the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is no redemption, no forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of darkness, which is Satan's domain. All right. But now that the kingdom has come and Satan has been bound, and and, and all this means is that the strong man being bound, it's not that he can't be, he can't tempt or that he can't deceive or he can't accuse. His powers, his authority has been limited. So that we, in proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, people can be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light. And so that's what Jesus is saying. This happened with the inauguration of the kingdom, the ministry of Jesus that culminated, at least on earth, with his death and resurrection. And so I'm going to suggest to you, with the inauguration of this kingdom, climaxed in his his death and resurrection, Satan is bound... But then he is also cast into the abyss, meaning that he cannot demonize. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, if John, if you didn't get that, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to those talks on, on or, uh, two weeks ago on Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Uh, I think it will become, become clear to you. Um, and so Satan has both been bound and cast into the abyss. I I want you to notice something. If we were to go back to Revelation chapter 12, the picture that we get is Satan wants to destroy this woman. She gives birth to a male child. He ascends to heaven. That would represent Jesus' death and resurrection, okay, and and ascension into heaven. And it says, Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels, and the devil and his angels lost and were cast down to the earth. Now have come the salvation of our Lord and of of his uh, of God and of his Christ. And, and we see here the climax in the, the, the cross, the resurrection and Jesus' ascension that Satan is defeated. This war is the spiritual backdrop to what's taking place during this time of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? And this is Satan's initial, initial defeat. And what happens to him? He is cast out of heaven he is cast down to the earth and it says this he was overcome by the blood of the lamb the cross and by what else the word of our testimony how does that fit into the grand scheme of things how does the word of our testimony overcome Satan how does that happen what is our testimony? Glorifies God. Uh, what did you say, John? It glorifies God. Okay, our, our testimony glorifies God, but why? What is our testimony? It proclaims the power of Christ. What, what, but what is our testimony? It's the story of how we got saved. That's right. It is the, it is the story of, listen, it's the story of the blood of the Lamb applied to our life in a moment in history after the cross. For me, it was almost 2,000 years after the cross. Okay? That is the word of my, that is my testimony. 
And, and so it, Satan is overcome in two ways. At the cross by the blood of the Lamb. And then in my life, when, I, when Jesus rescues me from my sin, that is my testimony. And Satan was overcome because of my testimony. Because the blood of Christ applied to my life. I was rescued from his dominion of darkness. And so I'm going to suggest to you that in Revelation 12, we see both the, the, the defeat of Satan at the cross, but every time someone gets saved, the application of the cross throughout the church age is also the defeat of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says that the reason the Son of God came was to, de- was to destroy the devil's works. Okay, question? Yeah, so how does that mesh with in the very beginning of the first semester we were talking and that words don't have power? And what? How words don't have power. Words don't have power. Right. Okay, I'm not saying that by me standing here and... Words don't have power. Your testimony isn't words. Right. Our testimony, I'm thinking of two different things here and trying to explain two at the same time. Our testimony is not our words. It is what happened to me when I was converted. I converted into words, and I can say, let me share my testimony with you. Okay? All right? The testimony of Jesus that we are to bear witness to is not just words. It's an event that transformed church history, split it in two. Okay? So it's an event. So words... Words... Go back and just listen to that, because I didn't say that words don't have power, but it is out, because words can speak faith and life, and the Spirit works through faith. Mm-hmm. And so our words don't resurrect. When, when Peter said, Tabitha, get up, those words didn't bring her to life. The Spirit of God did. But the Spirit of God operated through Peter's faith and authority. Actually, that was this past Sunday I spoke on that. And as Christians, we do need to speak with authority and because the Spirit of God works through that. Okay, so uh, yes, words don't have strength, power, but they do in that the Spirit of God empowers them, works through them, because it's faith. All right. Um, and so, d- did you have a question or comment, John? Yeah. So when you said how many times somebody uh, is saved, we're defeating demons and death. Right. We're defeating Satan. Yes, that would be that would fall under this category of Satan's defeat. Satan is in the process right now of being defeated. Okay. And then after that, then Scripture says that the angels they all like clap and praise every time someone's saved. Yes, Luke that, fifteen. Like, That's right. Is it because they're seeing like the demise or the you know the defeat of Satan? Uh, that is a really good question that I don't have an answer for because it, when, when in, in Luke 10, when Jesus, when the disciples come back, they're rejoicing. Wow, we, we spoke and demons submitted to us, blah, blah, blah. And, and Jesus says this. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Okay. I saw Satan fall. I saw Satan fall. Like, like, like lightning from heaven, okay? And is that something that was just a one-time thing? Is he speaking metaphorically? Does that, would Jesus be able to say that every time 
that demons are cast out because that is Satan being defeated? I, I don't know. Um, some theolo- theologians come down on both sides of that. But I would, venture, I would lean more towards that being an ongoing thing, that Satan is being, being cast down and defeated. Um, but it, again, at the, it, with the inauguration of the kingdom, which happens before the cross, by the way, but the inauguration of the kingdom with the cross and resurrection as its capstone, continuing on into the church age, Satan was defeated. Now we looked at John chapter 12, verse 31. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. And it's that cast out, ekbalo, that's used here when you cast out demons. That doesn't mean that he's going to be cast out of a person, but he's going to be cast out um, as in he... I would venture to say that what Jesus was saying there in John 12, 31 is the very same thing that happens in Revelation 12. Satan is cast down to the earth. Now, it's interesting how John introduces to us or speaks of Satan as he's Satan, he's the devil, he's the old serpent, and he is um, the old, he's the dragon. And he does that again in Revelation 20. My understanding of this is these are two parts of the same scene or the same event in which there's war in heaven, he loses, and he's hurled down to the earth. One angel pursues him to the earth at the cross, takes him, one angel binds him, and at that moment throws him, casts him into the abyss. And I believe that this is what Jesus had in view when he said, and I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, Now the prince of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And he said this referring to his death. And so we see at his death, Satan being cast out. He is first hurled to the earth and then an angel binds him and casts him into the abyss. Okay, and that is how he, his, the, the binding renders him unable to completely hinder people from coming to Christ. Um, it is a victorious note. It is the victorious advancement of the gospel. Um, I think we should have a very positive view of regardless of your experience in evangelization. Um, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it plunders hell and populates heaven, okay? It plunders the kingdom of darkness and populates the kingdom of Jesus. And so I, I want to bring two, quick, two passages quickly to you. Uh, I have mentioned these in the past, uh, sermons, theology class, etc. And I'm going I'm to remind uh, you of these. The first one is second. Uh, the first one is Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-five and twenty-six. He's referring to the servants of the Lord. He says, "Those who oppose him, referring to the servant of the Lord, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them—that is, those who are opposing the gospel—grant them repentance, leading them, this unsaved person, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses." That literally means come back to sober, return to sobriety. They will become sober. They, they, it's like waking up from this dream state. 
like the lost son, he comes to his senses and says, my goodness, what am I doing here? God, I feel like I want to fill my belly with this pig swill. What, what am I thinking? All I need to do is just go back to my father. Okay, that is coming to their senses, that God would be able to bring them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape, listen to this, and escape from the trap of the devil. This tells me that every unbeliever is caught in the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Every unbeliever is caught in this snare, and the only thing he can do is the will of Satan. Escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. They are enslaved to their sin and thereby enslaved to our adversary, the devil. That is Satan's hold on those in the kingdom of darkness. That is what we are experiencing now. Let me just add one more thing before I comment on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Verse 4, it says, The God of this age, who would be who? Satan. Satan, thank you. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so it is as the Spirit of God comes, remember we talked about prevenient grace, God's grace, as it would bear upon a lost sinner and help turn this light on, and I do not believe that that is regeneration. Regeneration follows faith. But as God's grace interrupts this or intervenes in this enslavement to do Satan's will and this blindness that they have, that they come to their senses, coming to a knowledge of the truth, and they say, man, I need to get out of this. That is the, the effects of the binding of Satan at the cross. The, the coming of the kingdom. And, and so I'm going to say that even though Satan has control over unbelievers, he has been limited in that control because when the gospel is proclaimed, the spirit of God working conjointly with the gospel, it breaks through to people's hearts. It, it softens the hardened heart. It opens the blinded eyes and people at that moment believe. And so as they are humbled, as they start being drawn to Christ by the Father, they believe, and then they are set free. And so there's a joint work of God as he's opening their eyes, and man, as he's humbling them, saying, man, I cannot do this on my own. I see a synergism here rather than a monergism. If you, Calvinists would believe in a monergism, the, it's only God. He's got to enlighten the man as he's got to wake them up i do see a cooperation here with man as he humbles himself and as he as, as he comes to a knowledge of his sin um but god is thoroughly involved as well and so but this is because of the cross the kingdom of god the proclamation of the gospel the work of the spirit that has bound satan so that now when the gospel's proclaimed God rescues or plunders the strong man's house, okay? This then not only is something that happened back in the day of Jesus' ministry and the inauguration of the kingdom, but it happens throughout church history until Christ comes. When Christ comes, that's it. There's no second chance. That's it. That's the end of that. That's the consummation of the ages. We have the judgment 
And then we have the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the resurrection, of course, the judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live in this uh, era, this age, in which Jesus is destroying Satan's work. Jesus is plundering the kingdom of darkness. The gates of hell will not be able to withstand the onslaught of the church. I'm paraphrasing, but that is that is the tenor of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 16. The gates of hell will not prevail. Okay? Um, so as we look here in... Let me see if there's anything else that I have left unsaid. Um, eventually... Okay, eventually we see... Matthew 25, 41, when he turns to those on his right, remember the, uh, Jesus separates the nations as, he would se- as a shepherd would separate the sheep and the goats, and he says those on his left, he's already spoken to those on the right, they enter into his kingdom, those on his left who have not believed in him, he says, and <clears throat> they will go away to, um, basically, they will go away to hell, that place prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that hell was for the devil and his angels and unbelievers will be cast there too. Well, we see that at the end of Revelation, not the end, but at at the end of our passage that we study, Revelation 20, verse 10, it says that Satan was thrown. First, he was cast into the abyss and now he is thrown into hell Excuse me. He's thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, hell, where the beast and the false prophet. um, The words and, excuse me, the words had been thrown. I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, If you're NASB, is that were thrown? Uh, Whatever it is. Uh, Those are not in the Greek. They are assumed. So we want to just understand that it's not as if the beast and the false prophet have already been thrown into hell and then a thousand years later Satan is now thrown into hell okay that past tense had been thrown it's not in the Greek all right he, he is referring he's saying in essence where I told you the, the beast and the false prophet were thrown that's where Satan will be thrown that's in essence what John is saying here and then of course we have the great white throne judgment and um, those whose names were not in the book of life were cast into hell as well. And so we see here that Satan's demise, it, it says, referring to Satan, the beast, the false prophet, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You cannot come up with a Greek phrase that is so rich with the eternal in it. I mean, you can't say eternity any more than this right here. Forever and ever. And ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, without end, amen. Okay, that is what he is saying. And, and all of those who do not believe in Jesus will be cast into hell and experience the same fate forever. That's, his, that's what Jesus is saying. All right, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about our reign with Christ. Um, it, it, it's... Let me just start off 
Daniel 7.18. That's not in your notes. I'm adding that. But turn with me to Daniel 7.18. This is the vision. He, he sees four great beasts coming out of the sea. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and then a terrifying beast. I would suggest to you that that would be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. But there is something about this idea of Rome that many see as he wraps it up, this horn um, in which as it comes up, uh, three others are displaced. That may be this sense of the end time beast. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that it's certainly possible that that is what Daniel is saying there. Um, and, and especially as we segue into verse, what is it, 26 and 27. We're going to look at that a little bit later. My focus right now is verse 18. The four beasts are four kingdoms, 17 rather. The four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. I do see that as something that does not happen at the end of the age, but that is something that has happened that Jesus' ministry brought, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And this is, remember what Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples on on the night that he was betrayed he says i confer on you a kingdom this is that kingdom that he is conferring on them that now jesus back in matthew 16 says to 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 peter representative of the whole group all of believers i give you the keys to the kingdom so this is the kingdom that we are receiving we have it right now you have you, you have inherited you have been conferred on you the kingdom of God. This is that kingdom that he is speaking of here. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. <clears throat> yes, forever and ever. Um, in possessing a kingdom, in, in a sense, we are ruling in this kingdom. And I would suggest to you that Romans 5.17 uh, hints at this, though it words it differently, <clears throat> and it says in, in uh, 5, did I say 17? Yes, 517. Um, he says, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Some see this as something that will happen in the future. I'm not seeing that here. It is something that we reign in life presently and will continue to reign in this life throughout eternity. And in the eternal state, it it says in Revelation 20, we will reign forever and ever. But we are reigning now. Let me suggest to you that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 I I think makes this pretty clear. He's talking about us being dead in our sins and now made alive in Christ. And in verse 6 it says, And God raised us up. Why? Because we were dead. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies in Christ. If we are seated with Christ, and Christ is reigning on his throne. What are we doing there? We are reigning. 
May I suggest to you the end of the letter to the Laodiceans in Revelation 3. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as the Father gave me the, that opportunity to sit on his throne. And so Christ sat on the Father's throne. There's only one throne in heaven, by the way, that God sits on. And Jesus sits with him on it. And we, in essence, spiritually being in Christ, we reign with Christ. Why do I say we reign? Because we are seated with him on his throne. That is a reigning throne. The, the, the symbolism, the rich symbolism of thrones is this concept of reigning. We reign with Christ. We were raised up with Christ and <clears throat> we're seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. Meaning, well, I mean, what does it mean that we reign then? Based on just that verse, we Reign with Christ because we are in Christ. And I want you just to just imagine, if, you were, if we were to just look at all of chapter 1 up to this verse, we would see this concept of being in Christ, meaning all of this inheritance that we have in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, chapter 1, verse 3, that we have in Christ. So whenever Paul, whoever's talking about you and me, believers in Christ, being in Christ... That means that we are co-heirs with Christ and we have all of this inheritance, including reigning with him. And I would suggest to you that that reigning means that we have become heirs and we have all of this at our disposal. We rule and reign with Christ. Now, part of that inheritance, and if, if you've been Sunday mornings enough and we're going through the book of Joshua we touched on a number of applications concerning the promised land and what that might look like, but that, in essence, part of that application is clearly our inheritance that we have in Christ. So I just want you to think back to maybe some of those sermons that God spoke to you about your inheritance in Christ, and that's what we're talking about. That is you ruling and reigning with Christ. The devil does not have to gain victory in your life. Sin does not have to defeat you. We have been, we are being led in triumphal procession in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians tells us. And so this triumphal procession is a day-to-day -day walk with Christ in which he empowers us and gives us authority to walk in holiness and to be able to do everything within the realm of God's will. And so that is what it means. We are not... Uh, we are not at Satan's mercy. He does not come at us and we fall in defeat. We can, but that is because we have chosen the flesh. We do not have to go that route. Victory is available to us. This is our inheritance. This is the power and the authority that we have in Christ. And so that's just, this is what it means for us to rule and reign in Christ. We're seated with him on his throne and rule and reign with him on that throne. Okay. Um, the intermediate state. You're in Daniel 7? Sorry, I, I'm not because I turned to Ephesians or wherever I was there. Uh, but let's, let's go back to Daniel 7 if, you're, if you've moved on. Daniel 7. I want you to see something here. And I want you to take a hard look at it. Verse 9 and 10. Daniel sees this boastful horn, and I'm not going to get into who or what this horn is. He is obviously in some way associated with this fourth beast, the terrifying beast, the Roman Empire. 
And then Daniel, excuse me, he sees what's going on there on earth with these four kingdoms. And now he switches in verse 9 and he says, As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, took his seat on his one throne that we see in Revelation, okay? His clothing was as white as snow. The the hair of his head was white like wool, representing total, complete holiness, purity. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, referring to God's holiness now in the form of of judging sin. Um, And it says, A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, Now, it's focusing on this concept of judgment because this horn is about to be judged. Because everything that he does is in direct confrontation to and rebellion against this holiness of God. Clothing was as white as snow. This is representative of God's holiness. And so judgment is coming from his throne. And it says, thousands upon thousands attended him. Who would those thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him? Who, who do you suppose those might be? Us. The church. Um, Sorry, the horn? That, that from this passage that I'm looking at. It's a view of heaven, there's thrones, there's one throne, the Ancient of Days, and then there's thousands of thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. Doesn't that sound reminiscent in Revelation with the angels? There's thousands and thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you that these are God's heavenly creatures, angels, and they are standing, and then it says, the court was seated. So the angels are standing, but the court is seated. And my question that I'm going to throw out to us is, who is this court? Because they are the ones who are now seated on these thrones. Go back to verse 9, and it says, I looked, and what did he see? Thrones, plural, were set in place. And then there was the one throne. Okay? Some might say, well, these are the 24 elders. We'll get to that in a moment. Um But the court was seated and the books were opened. The books have to do with life or judgment. Throughout scripture, life or judgment. What's going to happen here? Life or judgment with this horn? Judgment. Okay. And so then it talks about this horn being judged. Then we see one like a son of man, all authority given to him and so on. So I'm going to suggest to you that this court, and, and skip down if you will to verse 26, But the court will sit, after it's talking more in detail about this horn being destroyed, but the court will sit and his power, the horn, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. These, this handing of the kingdom over is different than verse 18, which is just very simple. They're receiving a kingdom. Now, everything, all sovereignty, power under heaven of all the kingdoms has now been entrusted to the saints. That is what we will receive in the eternal state, okay? And we will, ha- we will reign with Christ forever and ever. But the court that is seated are those who render decisions. Turn with me 
to Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Excuse me. Before we do that, let me throw in one other verse here. So on your way to Revelation, park yourself in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says every language worshiping him. Okay. Does that mean there's different languages going on? Uh, yes, and I, I, I would suggest that this is not just a scene in which Jesus is, this, this would be prophetic, yes, this is Jesus ascending to heaven and now representing that from there on, that the kingdom, he has received a kingdom. It doesn't say that in, in your version, but that's what, that's what dominion is, kingdom. He receives a kingdom, um, and that would then be the church, church of all tribes, languages, nations, etc., gathered, and they are worshiping and serving him. Okay. Um, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Do you not know that, you, that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Like this one in chapter 5. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So we will judge the world, we will judge angels. Now some suggest that this is what, that somehow in some way we will be a part of this end time judgment. It's just that the Bible never tells us that we are going to be with God rendering judgment upon the lost. It, some, some would suggest that there are verses that refer to this. I'm going to suggest that this refers to what we will be doing in the intermediate state. That we will be judging nations. We will be a part of the decision-making process as Daniel 7 talked about the court, the thrones, and the court was seated as if a decision against the, the horn has been made. Now, it's not, in some way, God, don't get me wrong, God is absolutely sovereign. But he invites his people to be a part of this rendering of judgments. Why does God even need angels? Why doesn't God just speak a word or snap his fingers and his will is done. Instead, he uses angels to minister to those who are heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1 says. Have you ever thought, why, why did God even create angels? What's their purpose? Yes, they worship God, but they do his bidding. They, they are messengers. They are ministers. They minister to us. Well, what do we need angels for? Why doesn't God or the Holy Spirit do Well, God, I don't understand all of this, but God in his sovereignty chose angels to do this. So why would God need us as a part of his decision-making process? I don't know, but I, I'm going to suggest to you that we're going to come to a conclusion very soon here from Revelation 2, 26 and 27, that in, as, as we are gathered around his throne, that we sit on thrones, Revelation 20, verse 4, and I saw thrones. That's you and me sitting on thrones. And we are rendering judgment or decisions, crino, to judge, also means to give decisions. So it's not just judgment, but it's, it's, it's decisions in general. That's what a leader does. You remember the book of Judges? That word doesn't just mean judge, it means leader, it means ruler. Not king, okay? 
People wanted to make Gideon king, and he said, no, 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 I'm not going to become your king. But he did become their leader because God was their king, all right? <clears throat> and so I'm not, I am simply suggesting that God has invited us to be a part of his court, rendering decisions upon the earth and being a part of that. So now that I've said all of that, let's look at Revelation chapter 2. And, and I did touch on this briefly last week, but we're going to spend just a little bit more time in it. And it says to the, the church in Thyatira, he concludes as he does with every letter to him who overcomes. Verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Now, is he saying, if you overcome and you endure to the end, that is the end of your life, and you die... Hundreds or thousands of years later, when you're resurrected, then I will give you authority over the nations? Or does he mean when you die, you have overcome, you've endured to the end, in heaven you will receive authority over the nations? Is that during the intermediate state that this, ver- that this is applied, this is fulfilled, or is it in the eternal state? To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them. That word rule, by the way, is um, um, is the word to shepherd. And we translate it rule. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. The first phrase gives this idea of ruling the second phrase this idea of judgment that's what you to him who overcomes he this is a passage from psalm 2 that refers to jesus that now we have inherited by virtue of this inheritance that we've received it's now been bequeathed if you will to us so this 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 is a this is from psalm 2 a messianic psalm but it is now being applied to us He, us, to him who overcomes, he will rule with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. Just as Jesus received the throne from his father, we sit on Jesus' throne. Just as Jesus received authority from the father, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18. So Jesus has given us this authority, and he's saying, I'll give a, you will receive authority over the nations. Here's something I'd like to suggest to you, and I suggested last week, but if, if you were to do a, a study on these seven letters, I'm going to suggest to you that all seven letters, to him who overcomes, refers to the, whatever you are given, it refers to the intermediate state. It does not refer necessarily to the eternal state. It can because whatever we receive in the eternal state, a lot of it carries over, excuse me, what we receive in the intermediate state, when I die and go to heaven, what I receive, some of it, like eternal life, that's going to carry over to the, inter- to the uh, eternal state. However, me being a pillar in the temple of God, I understand that's metaphorical. I'm not going to be a physical par- uh, pillar. And, but there is a temple in the intermediate state. And this is what John sees. But in the eternal state, Revelation 21 makes it clear there is no temple in the eternal state because Jesus is that temple. 
Okay, he is the one we adore, worship, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to suggest that all of these benefits that are given to those who overcome are given immediately upon entering into the immediate intermediate state. Look at the one for Ephesus. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, the, the paradise of God, what did Jesus say to the thief on the Christ? What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Wow. Get that one straight. Mess that one up. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is in heaven. And, and then the new Jerusalem and all of that comes to earth. But the tree of life would be in the paradise of God. I'm going to suggest if you look at these, then a very good case can be made that to him who overcomes, I will give in the intermediate state all of these blessings. And each letter concludes with to him who overcomes. So if you want to investigate that, do some homework, spend some time in this. I believe there's some rich application in it um, and just real comfort and encouragement. But we will reign in the intermediate state. And that is what Revelation 2, 26 and 27 suggests. That's what I'm suggesting. This right here in 2, 26 and 27 is the, interme- is the millennium. Okay, did, did you hear what I just said? Revelation 2, 26 and 27 is the millennium. That is us ruling with Christ. I realize that many versions in chapter 5, verse 10, say, um, you are, they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them, to be is not in the Greek, but it's under to be understood. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That Greek word on is the Greek word epi. Uh, in the genitive case, it, when it's followed by a, a word in the genitive, like this right here, the earth is in the genitive, it is understood in two different ways. It either is to be translated upon or on or over. Okay? If you were to uh, to look at uh, chapter 2, verse 26 and 27, he says that we just looked at, I will give authority, epi, the nations. The nations is in the genitive, and that word over is this Greek word epi. So whenever there is this concept of authority or power, it really should be translated over, given power over, authority over. So if we're going to rule or reign, do we, should we say you reign on or you reign over, you rule over? I'm going to suggest to you maybe a better way to understand this is not reigning on the earth, but, reign, but, but reigning over the earth. And that is what we see in Revelation 2, 26 and 27. They've been given authority over the nations. So we in some way will be a part of that uh, judging, rendering decisions over the world and angels. That is what 1 Corinthians 6 talks about. The Bible doesn't say anything more that I'm aware of on this concept. 
and and I think for good reason because if we go any further, then I, I think you can perhaps step into too much speculation, perhaps even heresy. Um, Mormons have done this and they've gone the whole gamut of saying we will actually become gods in our ruling and reigning in the afterlife and we will actually inherit our own universe blah 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 and and I, I do place a heavy emphasis on blah 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 because that is absolute heresy that is absolutely contrary to the word of God that is what Satan was was tempted with I will be like God we will never be like God we will never be God Okay, and Mormonism teaches that as as uh, we were, Elohim was, and as He is, we will become. In other words, God was a fallen man, and He ascended to Elohim ascended to Godness. We are fallen man, and we can ascend to Godness as well. That is totally what Satan fell into. Uh, that's pride. That is rebellion. And you you know, in view of our study today, what will happen to Satan in the end. So that is a that is heretical teaching. I'm going to challenge you. Please do not follow Mormon teaching. Um, the gospel for the Mormons truly is parenthetical, and 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 many of them do not believe in the gospel. And Mormonism was founded upon someone who is steeped in the occult, Joseph Smith, with Freemasonry. Um, so please, if, if you're ever tempted to say that Mormonism is simply an offshoot or a denomination of Christianity, please study that again. It, it certainly is not. Okay, um, to, to conclude our time then, we will be reigning on the earth um, in Revelation 22.5. And, and the reason why I'm only taking a minute on this is because when we talk about the new heaven and, new, and the new earth, what our, you know, with our resurrection body, etc., um, this is part of it. And wh in what way we exactly will reign forever and ever, 22 verse 5, and they will reign, referring to you and I, forever and ever, Scripture does not make real clear. And, and again, I'm going to emphasize, I think it's for a purpose. Revealed things belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong the, the, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children, that we might obey the law. And so I'm going to suggest, beyond this fact that we will reign with Christ here in this life, we will be given authority over the nations and in some measure uh, be a part of this decision-making of what takes place on earth, uh, and the fact that we will reign in the eternal state forever and ever beyond that scripture does not tell us and so I'm just going to leave it at that but we will receive um, even in the parable Jesus said to, to the one who had gained 10 minus he said I'm going to make I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities um, and I'm not saying that we'll have authority over ten cities. That was a parable. Um, but we, we can look at that another time. We will reign. We reign now in Christ. We will reign in the intermediate state in heaven. And we will reign forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And the, the, the whole idea throughout Revelation is this concept of victory overcoming, triumph. 
Satan truly is defeated. Regardless of what you see around you, he's defeated. His days are numbered. His time is short. And he will be completely and totally decimated, cast into hell, ruined forever. And we, his saints, regardless of the trials and the persecution we've been through, we will, as we're moving forward in triumphal procession, we will stand before the throne in glorious triumph. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The, the, the city of Babylon has been completely destroyed. Everything that Satan has poured his focus into, trying to build up in rebellion against God, completely confounded, completely destroyed, and God's people through Christ will stand triumphant. That is the vision that Revelation gives us. Let me close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the exciting truths that are in your word. Uh, Father, I, I personally wish there was more, but you have, you have purposefully left it limited. And so we simply know, God, in Christ we reign we, and we will reign. And we will be victorious and we will triumph. And our, 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 our hope is secure in Christ. And we look forward to that day, God. Uh, in which we are with you forever and ever. What an absolutely glorious day that will be. What a glorious eternity it will be. And so we look forward to it. In this life, though, Lord, as we are seated with Christ, I pray, Father, work that truth of reigning with Christ out every day that is not just accessible to us, but we walk in that triumph. We walk in that victory day by day. In Christ's name, amen.